0: Folks, Dr. Jamar Tisby here with another episode of Footnotes. This time, we are going to talk about Martin Luther King Jr.'s economic agenda. This is especially appropriate to help you think about and celebrate the Martin Luther King Jr. National Holiday and to that effect, let's talk also about the making of the Martin Luther King Jr. National Holiday because Folks, it was an ordeal. I'm young enough that uh, I don't remember a time when we didn't celebrate MLK Day as a national holiday. And it's been done for long enough that a lot of people kind of forget its founding. It's sort of taken for granted. It's just one of our national holidays, like 4th of July or or now Juneteenth. We should not forget what it took to make Juneteenth a national holiday either. But let's, let's think about that because it wasn't easy. So one of the things that struck me, it took 15 years for a president to finally sign the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday into law and make it a federal holiday. 15 years. Why? Because MLK Day was originally proposed just four days after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. King was assassinated in April 1968. Four days later, John Conyers, a representative from Michigan, Black, he proposed making a national holiday to commemorate Martin Luther King Jr., and more broadly, the civil rights movement and the activism that it took to secure more civil and human rights for Black people and all kinds of people. So all the way back in 1968, this was a topic of conversation. And it wasn't wasn't until 1983 that Ronald Reagan reluctantly, reluctantly, signed the bill into law, and that's because there was overwhelming public support of this. Critical to making Martin Luther King Jr. Day a national holiday was the advocacy of his widow, Coretta Scott King. We don't talk about her enough. First of all, she was an activist in her own right, a deep thinker in her own right, and uh, she helped shape Martin Luther King Jr.'s ideas about activism um, and even his his economic agenda, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment. So she was instrumental in helping build public support to create this national holiday. In addition, though, there were musical artists, artists of all kinds who helped build support, namely Stevie Wonder. When black folks get together and we celebrate birthdays, we don't just sing the traditional or the well known version of happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. We don't just sing that one. We might sing it, but then we'll do, then we'll say, now do the Stevie Wonder version. And you know how that goes. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday. What a a lot of people maybe forget or don't often pause to remember is that Stevie Wonder wrote that song in support of making Martin Luther King Jr. Day a national holiday. There's one line in there that says, I just never understood how a man who died for good, talking about MLK, could not have a day that would be set aside for his recognition, And then it jumps and says, in peace, our hearts will sing thanks to Martin Luther King. So next time you sing that song, Happy Birthday, the Stevie Wonder version, know that it was in support of making Martin Luther King Jr. Day a federal holiday. And that's all the way back in 1980. When it got to the floor for the final vote before it would become an actual federal holiday, there was still opposition, namely by Senator Jesse Helms. He's a notorious Southern Senator who um, was notorious because of his outspoken racism. And he got up on the day of the vote with a 300 page binder and accused Martin Luther King Jr. of being a communist and therefore they should not make a national holiday named after him. Thankfully, he was overruled. But again, Reagan was was reluctant to sign it. He basically said in 19, it it was in October, 1983. uh, And he went on to to sign this in into law, I think in November, he said this, I would have preferred a non-holiday in King's honor, but since they seem bent on making it a national holiday, I believe that the symbolism of that day is important enough that I will sign that legislation when it reaches my desk. I would have preferred a non-holiday in King's honor, but since they seem bent on making it a national holiday, does that sound like an enthusiastic endorsement? Who are they, Mr. Reagan? And bent on it? Well, Yeah. Yeah. It was important. The man should never have been killed. And he was. And we should never forget not just what he did, but what the constellation of people around him did in support of civil rights and helping the nation move closer to its stated ideas of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all people. So, That's a little bit of the background. There's one more thing that I should say. Even as Martin Luther King Jr. became a federal holiday, states had to adopt it. States had to observe it. And there were some holdouts. One notorious example is the state of Arizona. A lot of people wonder why places like Arizona are politically conservative? How can that be? They're in the West. They're not in the Deep South. Well, there's something called the Sun Belt, and what happened was we think of the Great Migration of Black people out of the South to points north and to the Midwest, some West as well. There was also another Great Migration of White people out of the South. They went all over the place, but a group went West. And so there are places like Arizona and even parts of California where they simply exported their Southern political conservative, some cases white supremacist views out West. And that's how you get a place like Arizona, which can become a holdout against celebrating something like the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. And it was so notorious that um, it took an executive order In the 90s, for it to be celebrated. But then the next governor came in and rescinded that executive order, which was not without opposition nationwide. There was an outcry up to the point that the Super Bowl, which had been scheduled to be in Tempe, Arizona, withdrew the right to hold the Super Bowl in the state of Arizona until they changed that and celebrated the MLK holiday as a paid national holiday. So the battle was ongoing, took a decade and a half for a president to sign it into law in spite of popular support from around the country. There were holdouts, there were white supremacists, they used all kinds of excuses not to get this passed into holiday. So even as we celebrate it year after year after year, we should know its origins. And one of the reasons why I think it's important to have annual holidays commemorating the Black freedom struggle and civil rights is because it gives us an annual opportunity to revisit what these holidays mean. Yes, there is a risk and it's almost an an inevitability that when you celebrate something year after year, especially uh, regarding civil rights and the Black freedom struggle, that it will be misappropriated, misunderstood, underappreciated. But at the same time, we can look at it as an opportunity for further education. And that's what I want to do, is to talk more about King's mission, his philosophy, his legacy. Now, it's too vast to cover all in one episode. And so I want to focus on one particular aspect of King's thinking, and that's his thinking about economics and money. The Bible says that money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, I should say, is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Many people say that slavery was America's original sin. I say slavery was America's original symptom and its original sin was greed. Greed is what led to the institution of race-based chattel slavery. Greed is what justified the labor exploitation of people of African descent that became what some have called the peculiar institution. Greed, that pursuit, that unbridled pursuit of wealth, the love of money, avarice, to use the old language, is what propped up, supported, and protected and perpetuated race-based chattel slavery. And then racism is a way to justify the labor exploitation of people of African descent. So the Bible had a lot to say about that. Other thinkers and activists had a lot to say about the love of money and what that led to. This is uh, the movement, this is the labor movement, the the movement to organize unions, the uh, effort to to give workers more rights. It's also part of Martin Luther King's philosophy and his approach to uh, fighting racism and injustice. So one of the things that we have to realize is that toward the end of his life, MLK became especially vocal about this. I spoke earlier of his assassination. Well, that was in Memphis, and he was in Memphis for um, the Poor People's Campaign, and he was supporting sanitation workers who were striking for better working conditions. Sanitation workers are, of course, working class folks. What a lot of people don't realize is that there was a massive tragedy that helped to instigate instigate this, this, this mass movement for sanitation workers. Two black sanitation workers were driving their truck. It was pouring down rain. Uh, they took shelter in the only place that was available to them at that point, which was the back of the garbage truck. A malfunction in the truck's electronics and wiring meant that the compressor Engaged and these men were crushed to death in the back of their own garbage truck. This tragedy, unthinkable tragedy, highlighted the horrible working conditions that black sanitation workers had to endure in Memphis and in all kinds of other cities and in all kinds of other industries. And MLK was there. To support them in their pursuit of workers' rights. He was also embarking on a broader campaign, the Poor People's Campaign, which would have been a cross racial endeavor to unite poor people across racial and ethnic lines that he saw as the next phase of the civil rights movement. Yeah, we needed to take the signs down. Over drinking fountains. Yeah, we needed to uh, make sure that black people didn't have to go in the back door to a restaurant or an establishment. But beyond that, and a piece of human dignity is making sure that folks have their material needs met, especially in the most financially prosperous nation on earth. We should also remember that in 1963, when he gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, In Washington, D.C., we remember it as the March on Washington, but that's the abbreviated name. Of course, you'll remember the full name was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. One of the other ways they designated that effort and other efforts was March for Jobs and Income. So you can see that there was always an economic component in Martin Luther King Jr.'s activism in the civil rights movement writ large. By the way, as an aside, historians are right in pushing for a deeper exploration and a greater understanding of other civil rights activists, especially Black women. Why? Because they don't get their due credit. They go Underrecognized recognized and underappreciated, And so I'm all for that, and I try to do that, especially uh, as I talk about one of my historical heroes, Fannie Lou Hamer. At the same time, there's a, there's a paradox there. There's so much attention on the influence of this one man, Martin Luther King Jr., and yet so many people misunderstand him some willfully some do out of plain ignorance i mean think about this how many folks do you know have actually read a full length biography of martin luther king jr of which there are dozens how many have read letter from birmingham jail from top to bottom beginning to end recently some of you have if you've been listening to this that's one of the things that that i encourage folks to do how many have had how many people have read one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s books from cover to cover? One of the things that boggles my mind is how a man who was so busy, constantly on the go, constantly at the forefront of the movement, actually made the time to write several books in his lifetime of activism. And thankfully, he did because they are a gift to us generation after generation? How many people have taken time to read it? How many people even have taken the time to watch a documentary about the civil rights movement or Martin Luther King Jr. in the recent past? So my point is this, even as we need to expand our knowledge and understanding of the multiple people who were involved um, in, in helping move civil rights forward in this country, at the same time, the person we we highlight by naming a federal holiday after him, we actually still know very, very little about. So hopefully this episode is, is helping to ameliorate that issue. Let's talk about his economic agenda. We talked about March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. We talked about the Poor People's Campaign and supporting sanitation workers. Those were all toward the the toward the end of his life, especially with the Poor People's Campaign. But we should understand that Martin Luther King Jr. always saw economics as part of the movement for civil and human rights. He got maybe more vocal later on, especially after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, especially after some of these legislative changes. He emphasized more uh, the, the economic aspect of his vision, but that was always part of his vision of a beloved community. How do I know? Well, you can go back to some of the earliest writings we have from him. As far back as 1951, King is in seminary at this point, and we have some of his notes from seminary. And he writes this in 1951. I am convinced that capitalism has seen its best days in America. And not only in America, but in the entire world. It's a well known fact that no social institution can survive when it has outlived its usefulness. This capitalism has done. It has failed to meet the needs of the masses. So, in this marginalia from seminary, what we're seeing from King is an acknowledgement, well, what we're seeing from King is an analysis. Of economics, an analysis of wealth, an analysis of money, and what he's saying in these early days is—he's early twenties at this point. He's he's talking about how capitalism, as practiced in the United States and worldwide, has run its course because it's outlived its usefulness. And the sign that he said was that is it's failed to meet the needs of the masses. So I think what King had in mind there were the vast masses of poor people, people who were destitute, people who did not know where their next meal was coming from. They coexisted at a time when incredible wealth was being created for the few. But the many still suffered from material wants and needs. And King saw this as a deficiency of capitalism itself because the wealth that the few were getting relied on the labor of the many. And they did not reap the rewards of that labor in anywhere close to proportion uh, that the few did. So he was talking about this in 51, Also, in the early 1950s, he and Coretta Scott King are courting. She sends him this book, asks him to read it. It's about economics. And then he writes back to her after having read that book. This book is a critique of capitalism, and it's sort of an allegorical tale about the year 2000, which was far in the future uh, when this book was originally written it was envisioning a future where society had evolved beyond capitalism and it was more of a sort of socialistic society. And so King reacts to this and he writes a letter to Coretta. Um, they're not married at this point. They're, they're, they're sort of courting one another. And, and he said, I would certainly welcome the day to come when there will be a nationalization of industry. Let us continue to hope, work, and pray that in the future, we will live to see a warless world a better distribution of wealth, and a brotherhood that transcends race or color. This is the gospel that I will preach to the world. Let us hope, work, and pray that in the future we will live to see a warless world, a better distribution of wealth, and a brotherhood that transcends race or color. This is the gospel that I will preach to the world. This is when he's in seminary. This is before Martin Luther King Jr. is Martin Luther King Jr. It's before the Montgomery bus boycott. This idea of a beloved community and of a specific aspect of the beloved community, a better distribution of wealth, is already nascent in his thinking all the way back as far as his seminary days. In 1957, he contemned, quote, the tragic inequalities of an economic system which takes necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes. That's 1957. So he's a little more than a year. Montgomery bus boycott begins December 1955, lasts all the way through 1956. He becomes a nationally known leader in this time as the spokesperson essentially for the boycott but he's also helping to shape the moral philosophy and the strategy of the movement he's being shaped as well but even as far back as his first campaign that puts him on the map in the Montgomery bus boycott he's talking about the tragic inequalities of an economic system which takes necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes. And then that's still the case. In 1966, so now we're getting toward the end of his life, the last two years of his life, he writes an article in the magazine, The Nation, titled, Jobs are Harder to Create Than Voting Rolls." Jobs are harder to create than voting rolls. In that article, he spends a, a bunch of his time talking about economics, wealth, money. But the larger framing of the article is what is the next frontier of the civil rights movement? What is the next hurdle? What is the next goal of the civil rights movement? Because by 1966, you've had Selma, you've had the March on Washington, you've had uh, um, the, the, the Civil Rights Act pass, you've had the Voting Rights Act pass, right? Fair Housing Act is coming up. In 68. Um, so you've seen some legislation to combat the more overt forms of racial prejudice that have been seen in society, particularly in the South. But one of the things that King recognized that so many of us today fail to recognize is that racism is dynamic. It's always changing. One of the things I say in my book, The Color of Compromise, racism never goes away. It just adapts. Now, that's not a pessimistic statement saying we can never win. It's a statement that says we should be wise. We should be savvy about what we're dealing with. That the racism of the 1960s is going to look different from the racism of the 1970s, let alone the 2020s. King recognized this. So he's talking about what do we do now? He says, quote, the future is more complex, more complex than racial segregation in public businesses and schools, for instance. The future is more complex. Slums with hundreds of thousands of living units are not eradicated as easily as lunch counters or buses are integrated. Jobs are harder to create than voting rolls. So even when it came to voting rights, King said that's Very necessary. But compared to people being able to pursue happiness, as the Declaration of Independence says, to pursue flourishing, to have economic security, he says jobs are harder to create than voting rolls. He goes on to say Negroes have benefited from a limited change that was emotionally satisfying, but materially deficient, materially deficient. So it's not just all attitudes and feelings. People got to have a roof over their heads. They've got to have food in their bellies. They've got to have jobs to guarantee their income and support themselves, right? And he says, as they move forward for for fundamental alteration of their lives, a bitter opposition grows even within groups that were hospitable to earlier superficial amelioration. Y'all, this is getting deep. Conflicts are unavoidable because a stage has been reached in which the reality of equality will require extensive adjustments in the way of life of some of the white majority. Woo! What's happening here? King is saying, even among our white allies, namely northern liberals, he was seeing resistance among those who supported his and other efforts for racial desegregation but now that it's coming to eradicating what he called the slums now that it's come to looking at wealth distribution and the economic fortunes of black people and other poor people now it's going to require change right if 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 you're a, a northern white liberal sitting in new york city or new jersey or somewhere else right you could look down on the South for their overt segregation. You could look at the, the Bull Connors of the world and say, oh, how horrible, that, that part of the country is so backwards. And then when it gets to the next stage of the civil rights movement, with ha- which has to deal with the money issue, has to deal with authentic desegregation, and or not just desegregation, but actual integration. When you're talking about busing Black students to white schools, well, now you see Former allies become enemies because now it requires real change. King recognized that. He said, conflicts are unavoidable because a stage has been reached in which the reality of equality will require extensive adjustments in the way of life of some of the white majority. Let me end with this. He says, Our nation is now so rich, so productive, that the continuation of persistent poverty is incendiary, because the poor cannot rationalize their deprivation. We have yet to confront and solve the international problems created by our wealth in a world still largely hungry and miserable. Our nation is now so rich, so productive, that the continuation of persistent poverty is incendiary. Because the poor cannot rationalize their deprivation. I lived in the Delta of Arkansas for 15 years. And in addition to that in Jackson, Mississippi. I lived in one of the poorest counties. It was called the fourth poorest county in the nation by income uh, in 2019. The poverty rate in my town was over 40%. Over 40%. Nearly half the people were in poverty. And I saw up close what that meant. And that poverty existed right alongside enormous wealth from farmers who owned big, big farms, industrial kind of farms, from lawyers and doctors and churches on just about every block. It was incredible. So what we're confronted with is enormous wealth existing alongside enormous poverty. And that enormous wealth is increasingly concentrated among the few and not the many or the masses. And that's increasingly confounding because we're talking about so much money, but it's not getting to everyone. And so Martin Luther King talked about things like guaranteed jobs, universal basic income, all of these things designed to alleviate the day-to-day struggles of the materially poor. That effort continues today with things like the Poor People's Campaign, uh, with uh, Reverend William Barber, Liz Theo Harris, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, and others leading the charge. Numerous efforts uh, help uh, aimed at helping houseless people. I think of uh, Terrence Lester and his ministry. Um, there's so much work still being done, but obviously there's so much work still to do. And I think personally that continuing Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy and the legacy of the civil rights movement in general increasingly has to folk has to focus on the economic situation in which we find ourselves with rising disparities between the haves and the have-nots and apart from an economic program of uplift particularly for black people we will not see sustained And meaningful racial progress. We just don't have the resources. And this vision of a more equitable economic system was always part of Martin Luther King Jr.'s idea of what the beloved community meant. And it's up to us to figure out what that program looks like, what our part in it is. How can all of us have enough in this land of plenty. So what are you going to do this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday? Um, I have a few suggestions. Black people, chill out. Take a break. I don't know if I'll get a break. I uh, MLK Day this year comes the day before classes start and I start teaching. So I might be working on my syllabus or lesson planning, but I hope to get some, some work done uh, in the days before that. One of the other things that I think is helpful to do is to go back and read some of Martin Luther King Jr.'s works. It can be a shorter work, like Letter from Birmingham Jail, or reading the text of his speech, the I Have a Dream speech, or any other document speech that you choose. Another way of celebrating and continuing the King legacy and the civil rights legacy is... Um, Nonviolence 360. Uh, That is a program out of the King Center, which Coretta Scott King founded and is now led by Martin Luther King Jr.'s youngest daughter, Bernice King, incredible human being who I learn a lot from. And they conduct these trainings in nonviolence. And I think they recently were able to put a lot of them online. And so that's one of the things that you can do is actually learn more in-depth, nonviolence365, education and training. Just go to thekingcenter.org and maybe you get a group together, maybe a group from your church, maybe your family does it, whatever. But that's another way to link uh, faith and works, to link the Nonviolent activism of King to our present day issues of justice. And then I also was recently reminded as I was researching uh, the, the making of the King holiday, there is an effort to transcribe the Freedmen's Bureau records. Uh, The Freedmen's Bureau was known as the United States Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, and that was created by Congress in 1865 to help in uh, supporting recently freed Black people after emancipation. And there are all these records from the Freedmen's Bureau that need to be transcribed in order to make them accessible online. Uh, The website says there are 1.7 million image files. And the Transcription Center is a platform where digital volunteers can transcribe and review transcriptions of Smithsonian collections. The Friedman's Bureau Transcription Project is the largest crowdsourcing initiative ever sponsored by the Smithsonian, meaning the Smithsonian museums. You can go to the National Museum of African American History and Culture's website, or you can just Google Friedman's Bureau Transcription Project and sign up, and that would be a great item to do on MLK Day. So I hope you have appreciated this uh, revisiting of Martin Luther King Jr., the making of the holiday, Martin Luther King Jr.'s economic agenda, and how we might commemorate that day even in the 21st century, there's a lot more to that, and I would love to continue telling you about it. If you go to jamartisby.substack.com and subscribe, you can subscribe for free, or you can support my work by becoming a paid subscriber. I would greatly appreciate it. Jamartisby.substack.com. Also, subscribe to Footnotes, this podcast. And if you've already subscribed, have you left a rating and review? Maybe that would be a good MLK Day activity as well. You can also visit jamartisby.com for links to all kinds of other resources, including my books, which talk about MLK and racial justice. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Footnotes. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day.